Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit therapynotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes today. Just use the promo code THERAPYCHAT when you sign up for a free trial at therapynotes.com. Thanks also to DoxyMe for sponsoring this episode. DoxyMe is an easy-to-use, HIPAA-compliant telehealth platform that is available in free and paid versions. Get $50 off a paid account by going to doxy.me and putting in the code THERAPYCHAT. A couple weeks ago, my group practice needed to close our office to in-person sessions and make a quick pivot to telehealth due to the coronavirus. I was able to set up free HIPAA-compliant DoxyMe accounts for my staff and interns. This allowed us to quickly and easily transition to telehealth during a stressful situation. I already had my own paid account that I'd been using as needed. DoxyMe has been easy for staff and clients to use so we can focus on the therapy sessions. Get $50 off a paid account by going to doxy.me and putting in the code THERAPYCHAT. That's D-O-X-Y dot M-E and use the code THERAPYCHAT for $50 off. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Daryl Van Tongren, PhD, and Sarah Van Tongren, LCSW, who are here to talk about, among other things, their book, The Courage to Suffer. Daryl and Sarah, thanks so much for being my guests on Therapy Chat today. Thanks, Laura, for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad that we connected I'm really interested in speaking with you as we're going through this strange time living through a pandemic. Existential suffering is seems to be a big theme that I'm noticing. And when I heard that that is the focus of your book, I was really curious to want to learn more about it from you. But before we even dig into that, let's just start off by, if you would, 
each of you telling our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm a, an associate professor of psychology at Hope College. Uh, I'm a social psychologist by training, and I conduct research on topics such as meaning in life, religion, virtues like forgiveness and humility. And I teach classes and also uh, conduct research with students. Yeah, and I'm a, I'm a private practitioner. I've, I, we live in Michigan, and so I have my own private practice. I've been a social worker in lots of different capacities, working in interpartner violence shelters, hospitals, inpatient settings, outpatient settings. And honestly, the topic of suffering was interesting to me years ago when we started, when I started really in, in a medical setting was working with lots of clients who had complex medical needs. Mm-hmm. And it, I was noticing they didn't have easy answers. And, you know, the sort of typical modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, like think differently about your diagnosis of muscular dystrophy. It's like, that's just crappy and <laughs> it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went through some personal, personal things related to uh, Daryl's brother died tragically. And we went through our own, uh, own suffering related to that and then infertility. And so it became very personal to us. And so we, we realized very quickly these things that we were studying are very different than maybe the practical applications that we were seeing. And so this book was sort of born out of that. Wow. I'm so sorry for your losses and glad that you found a way to help other people understand that process of, you know, living through suffering and coming to terms with it. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. I know that's been the interesting thing. Like there had been even numerous times when we would seek therapy, both personally as a couple and even therapists had a really hard time sitting with people that you couldn't fix their suffering. And so we really wanted to have create a resource to sort of not to say that we know it all by any means, but sort of as a beginning point to have uh, to open the conversation to what are these existential questions that create additional suffering when people are going through problems or life circumstances or trauma that does not have an easy answer. Yeah. I mean, that is so true that it can be, we as therapists, we are so focused on wanting to help people. And when the questions are like, I've had this myself, like these questions of like, why do things happen? Like, why do babies get cancer and things like that? You know, it's like, there's really just no way I can make myself feel better about that. It's just not (laughs) good. Right. Right. And I think sometimes just calling that out, like, I think that's the thing I'm learning is it's not like because of my own suffering, I have the answer now. It's just more of like, oh, I have this ability to realize sometimes it's just naming like that sucks. And that in and of itself is therapeutic. Yeah, exactly. But I know as therapists, you know, we have a lot of the ways that we're often trained. It's like, well, just think about, you know, they'll be in a better place or whatever. And it's like, that's not helping, you know? Right. That's one of the, that's one of the kind of the paradoxes of suffering. At least the way we we kind of think about suffering is it's this persistent pain that reveals these deep existential truths about human nature. So things that really you can't think di- you cannot think differently about because they're just kind of facts of life so things like uh we're all going to die one day or the world is largely outside of our control but we have the responsibility to still make choices in that the question of how do we make sense of of our life and of of our identity and then the fact that we're all 
relatively isolated from one another. And all, each of our experiences are just our own. All of those existential realities can erode our sense of meaning and can compound our suffering and oftentimes make it worse. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really interested in exploring this with you more. And I guess for the context of what everyone is living with right now, going through this worldwide pandemic, this not affecting everyone the same way, but it's affecting everyone. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that the existential questions fit into this current situation? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we say is that everybody experiences suffering, but it's likely the case that suffering falls most profoundly on those on the margins. So there's some people who are going to acutely feel that more than others. But like you said, each of us is going to be experiencing these existential themes. So when we're, we're thinking about the first theme, which is groundlessness, this describes the lack of control that we have in life and the burden of still needing to make a choice. So this disease came virtually, it felt like out of nowhere, and it's nothing that any of us can really control. And and try as we may, and and we should be doing our due diligence, we should be adhering to stay-at-home orders, social distancing, covering our mouth, wearing a mask. We can try our best to control what we can control. I think it reveals that largely life is outside of our control. And and I think it can peel back this idea that a sense of control might be a, a little bit of an illusion. I think that even that is terrifying for so many people. For me, the first time my therapist said, well, you know, I remember one time I said, everything's falling apart. And he said, everything's always falling apart. And I was like, (gasps) (laughs) right. And and, and that, in that moment that you had where that deep gasp, that aha, that, that feeling of existential dread, you know, one of the things that we hope is that therapists can help their clients see, and maybe they themselves can also come to see these existential realities, not as threats, you know, not as fears, but as truths and and things that they need to become acquainted with as as kind of facts of life. And and so I'm curious for you, how did it feel once you, you sat with the idea that, oh yeah, things are always falling apart? Well, after I tried to fight against that idea for a bit, you know, because it led to the, but what if everything's not going to be okay type of idea. He, well, I, I found comfort in it. Actually, I was like, oh, it's okay. There are things outside of my control. It's okay. You know, it's, this is just how life is. It's not that my life isn't going the way it's supposed to right now. This is just part of life. I I found it very comforting once I settled with it a little bit. Right. I know when for me, and I know this can, it it does, it seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Like it doesn't seem like that would bring anyone comfort, but that's (laughs) something we've found to be the case. Like I remember after Daryl's brother passed away and it's actually, it's a genetic condition and Daryl's dad ultimately died of it. And yeah, it's really crappy. And there's a chance Daryl could have it. And so, and it's not really like this, you take a test and you have it or not. It's like this sort of unknown, there's no specific mm-hmm. test for this kinds of thing. You sort of wait till it happens. And I just remember like the panic I lived with trying to control, honestly, trying to control Daryl because there's like all sorts of indicators. Like if you have high blood pressure, that's not great. Or if you're not exercising or not drinking water. So I'd be like always this sort of like 
really intense, crazy person. Like, did you drink the water today? Like, let's take your blood pressure. You know, like I just became this really crazy control freak because I was trying to like react against that groundlessness and say like, this is the thing I can control. So I'm going to do it, damn it. (laughs) And it was terrible. And so then it was this interesting moment that I had this weird, crazy, I mean, because this is the sort of us in this sort of existential world we live in is I had this moment thought lived like, well, I guess he could just die if he walked down the street and got hit by a bus. And I like felt like instantly better. Like, oh, like there are so many things that are out of our control. It would be terrible. I wouldn't want that. But like every day there's these things that we go through that are out of our control. And, you know, and I I think it's, it's like knowing what's the balance of like, yes, please still take your blood pressure medicine and (laughs) look both ways when you cross the street. (laughs) But also knowing that there is also this element of just largely things that just come out of nowhere, like a pandemic. Yeah, the the upside to realizing groundlessness is that to some degree the pressure's off. It's like if, freedom. Yeah, if you if you can't control life, well, then, then you don't have to. And, and there's a little bit of relief in that. That I that resonates so much for me. And it's funny you said that about getting hit by a bus because I literally say that to clients all the time. And I also find that reassuring too. That <laughs> it's like you know, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if that that happens? And then it's like we could leave here today and get hit by a bus. So those things may not even be, and it's kind of like, what's the point of worrying about, about it if you know you can't control it, but it's not to dismiss or diminish the way the person feels about it, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. It was still terrifying and it would still be like really crappy to get hit by a bus. Like that's not great. (laughs) That would be horribly tragic too. But you know, the, what I take from it is maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but you can control that. So what can you do to appreciate now? Exactly. Yeah. It's these, these existential, these fears sort of what we have maybe even discovered personally, but then I think I've borne witness to this with my, a lot of my clients and probably even Daryl with his students in some of the classes that he teaches is that there is actually incredible meaning that grows out of all of that. So like if you can't control like what are the beautiful things that, that you want to live into? What are the beautiful things that like make this moment right now worth living? Yeah, that part is really, that's very healing to me. So I sort of took Daryl off track because you were talking about the four main fears that contribute to existential suffering. And I really would love for you to talk more about those. You you mentioned groundlessness sure. and maybe even go into a little more depth of what what that feeling of groundlessness is? Yeah. So yeah. So the the first one we, we talked about a little bit is groundlessness. Um, I, I'd say that the, the the corollary of where we probably most feel that is a sense of like free floating anxiety. So like you identified, just this, this sense that we're not in control, and it's this odd feeling that's also coupled with not only that anxiety but the weightiness of having to make decisions in the midst of knowing that. So it's also kind of bearing the weight of having freedom in life where nothing really is certain. And that can feel anxiety provoking too, because you often aren't sure, am I making the right decision? Right. It is, and I think that's also what, what our nation is wrestling with right now. What is the right decision? Should we stay in? Should we not stay in? No one's quite sure. And that feels really weighty. You know, the, the second existential concern, um, and I think we're all acutely feeling this is isolation. Now, from a from an existential perspective, what this refers to is the 
fact that we're all phenomenologically having very unique experiences right now. And because of that, we can't quite know what it's like to be someone else. And that means they can't quite know what it's like to be us. So like even in a context of like a marriage or a a long-term relationship where you're like living together and you're like socially isolating together, you're still having very different reactions, very different feelings, very different priorities, <laughs> different experiences. And so although maybe we're living the same day to day, it's fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. And so the, that realization that our realities are are different creates this gap and, and we realize, gosh, I'm, I'm just alone. The third fear is, or, or reality, I guess, is our desire to create a sense of identity. And for many people, their identity can is, is often found in work or in professional life. And for the millions of Americans for whom that's been disrupted, right now this pandemic is a is a colossal threat to their sense of identity. Who who are they? And of course there's other ways to find identity besides work, in relationships, in hobbies, in other values. But even still right now, I mean that's something that's interesting is like I like to create and paint and I was realizing, oh, I don't have any paper. And so I can't do that right now. Yeah. <laughs> and so like there is also this limited, like the, the limited resources that we're trying to conserve for very, you know, very intentional, good reasons also puts pressure on some of those, you know, like, I don't know, like something I enjoy, I'm actually I like to train for triathlons, but like those have all been canceled and I can't, you know, swim in the pool. And yes, I understand cognitively that is, these are all good reasons. I support that. And at the same time, it challenges that part of, of me and that identity and also that, that outlet of like who I am. Um, and so lots of people are going through that, whether it's job loss to hobby, you know, again, not to say that it's all equal because it's not, but it, it, it does hit all upon that same existential fear. Let's just pause for a moment so I can give you a little bit more information about why I love therapy notes. I switched to therapy notes a few years ago. I'd say it's about three years now, I believe, and I have never regretted it. I was very happy with the EHR I used before, but Therapy Notes is more intuitive. I love the interface. The customer service is fantastic. And I love how I can get my notes done quickly because I can customize the template that I use for my notes. And there are opportunities to put check marks rather than having to write out the intervention used. So I have cut my time spent writing notes way down, which is wonderful because I like to focus on seeing clients. I know documentation is an important part of our work, but it can also be time consuming. And that is why I love using therapy notes. If you are considering switching EHRs or you're looking for one to use in your practice, give therapy notes a try. You can get two free months by using the code therapy chat. Now let's get back to our interview. Yeah, I think um, like, for example, people who go to the gym every day and that's just a really important part of how they see themselves that this is what I do. It makes me feel good. And now they can't go to the gym. They can still find other ways to move their bodies, but maybe they don't feel like they have the energy for it because of the stress they're under. And then it's like, 
Right. Oh, what am I? You know? Right. Right. Yeah. right. You know, and then the the fourth and, and this one. And no one likes to talk about this yeah, one. This, Let's this, just name this. this and, is I, the... and in fact, I'm going to give like a little a trigger warning to your listeners because there's a chance they might not want to listen after this, <laughs> and which actually will only prove the point a little bit that it's what we ultimately all try to avoid as humans. And that's the realization that we're all going to die, right? So death is the, is the kind of the fourth horseman of the existential apocalypse, if you will. You know, and, and it's not to say that we're all going to die of, of COVID-19, but it is a reminder that eventually we, we are all going to die. And this is, a, this is a, a very primal fear that we have, and it shows up in so many ways. You know, and we like to do lots of things that demonstrate our, uh, our dominion over death, right? We put parachutes on ourselves and hurl ourselves out of planes unnecessarily just to prove that, you know, we can come that close to dying but won't actually die. You know, and, and so this is just a, bit, a giant reminder of our own human frailty and mortality. Although suffering reveals these things, we, we do think that there are ways to engage these realities with authenticity and with autonomy that people can find meaning and find a flourishing life while acknowledging these realities. Can you go into a little more detail about when you said with authenticity and autonomy? Yeah. So I think one of the first things that Sarah and I really try to make clear in the book is that most people just want to avoid these things, either intentionally and consciously or, or unconsciously. And we're sort of bent towards that. Our society is bent to that. You know, like I mm. think about, you know, the use of my cell phone, right? And how quickly I can escape my experience, my body, my present moment by just tapping out of those uncomfortable feelings, right? And so we also, you know, are pretty consumeristic culture. So we, we sell youth and we sell all these things. Mm -hmm. And so we, we, our culture is just bent towards avoiding those things. And so this has brought COVID-19 has brought it to a grinding halt for us to sort of all sit with it. And to be honest, I don't think we have not been prepared for this, right? Like both existentially and reality wise. But, but, but as long as we, we keep avoiding those, all of our responses will always be reactive, and so we don't have a sense of autonomy if we don't acknowledge the truth of these existential realities. And so part of what we argue is we really have to move towards acceptance. And once we move towards acceptance that, yes, the world is outside of my control and I do need to navigate my identity. And I realize that no one may really know what it's like to be me. And I also realize one day I'm going to die. Once we accept those things, then we get to choose what we do with that. We get to choose how we live. And that's where the autonomy comes in, into play. We get to decide, what am I going to do with the precious life that I have? I know that it's limited. I get to choose. So instead of avoiding and being reactive, it's, it's actually a bit of an empowering stance to accept this. When I, I was even reading an article yesterday in the New York Times, and it was he was interviewing like a psychologist who practiced in Sarajevo during the time which they had a shelter in place for four years. And he was, he was sort of, they were asking him the question like, well, what was it like to treat, you know, patients during back in the day when you had to shelter in place for four years and you didn't know if you were going to survive? And, you know, what was the resilience? Can you find any resilience in that? And he just was saying, and I think this is what we were sort of saying in our book too, is the idea that you, it's the acceptance of what is and that's what makes it autonomous. So he was sort of saying it's the, it's his patients that were able to say, this is what it is. Now, what can I do with it as it is versus that 
I need to go back to the new normal. Like it, mm-hmm. I used to be able to go to the bowling alley. Now I can't, or my hair looks really crappy and I can't get it cut or those kinds of things. Or like, I, I should have been able to hold on to my job and I didn't, but it's more of like, we don't have a haircut. We don't have a job. We don't. And then going forward from there, that's the acceptance. It's not necessarily saying this like, and I'm so happy. And isn't it great? Cause like, that's just, that's just fake, right? That's not authentic. Um, but being able to wrestle with, with what is, you know, and, and it was interesting. I even had this thought and we even looked at after I reading that article yesterday, like, okay, if this is what it is and this is what it is for the long haul, what do we need to do in our house to make, to, you know, to, to make this livable, right? So much we've been fighting against it or just trying to piecemeal things together, but what are the things we need to do to, to make it livable? And so that piece of autonomy, that's where that comes into play. Wow. Yeah. That's really thought provoking. In so many ways, I'm thinking about, for one, how when you talked about Sarajevo, I thought, and this is a thought I've had uh, a few times during this experience is that here in America, you know, of course, in America, there are many people who live in poverty and deprivation. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's certainly not an egalitarian society where everyone right. gets what right. they need. But even so, in America, it's pretty unfathomable to live through some of the previous pandemics that have happened throughout Asia that unless we knew someone who was affected, generally, that wasn't really on most Americans' radar. You know, you would hear about it, but it seems so distant. And I think now not to equate that what we're going through is like living through four years of bombings (laughs) in Sarajevo, but, but yet there's a shared experience with other people who have suffered through things that they just couldn't change. They couldn't make it better mm-hmm. no matter right. how much they wanted to. Right. right. You know, and, and there's a grief associated with that. And we need to give ourselves permission to grieve, Yeah, to grieve what has been lost. You know, even if things go back, you know, quote unquote to, to normal, we're going to still carry with us the, the emotional remnants of this, the memories of this, the instinctive reactions of the fear when we're, if we're in a big crowd or yeah. the, the, kind of that gnawing question that we all might have, like, when is this going to happen again? When's the other shoe going to drop again? Yeah, I can't help. And I guess this is kind of a, I don't know if it's an existential thought or not, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about, I always, when I work with clients who have trauma, you know, we talk about family of origin and we talk about how, what did your parents live through? What did your grandparents live through? What did your great grandparents live through to understand the intergenerational effects and the traumas that affected them too, that impacted the way they could parent or the way they could, you know, be kind or be safe or whatever it was. And this is going to be like that, where everybody who lived through this will be changed in some way from the experience and how will it impact the way we go forward in our lives for generations. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I think about even my sister, she's pregnant right now. And, you know, just the reality of being pregnant in the current situation, even, you know, prenatally what happens to the baby and all of those things, right? We, as you know, trauma therapists, we carry that in our bodies. It's very real visceral experience. And, and I think that's the thing that we were, we were saying with, tra- with um, existential, 
uh, is we, we carry those fears in our bodies. We carry, we feel them, we experience them. And so it's, it's in some ways, what we have to start doing is, is naming it, right? That's what trauma, trauma work does too, right? <laughs> Absolutely. As soon as you understand what's happening, it mm-hmm. feels less overwhelming. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so that's what we're sort of saying is we can use this fear as information to then we get to then do something about it. We can, you know, what we sort of like to do is we, we pair, um, we sort of work with the model we call like existential positive psychology. So largely, um, as a, as a clinician, those, those two camps don't often talk to each other. It's either existential angst all the time, death, we're going to die all the, and that's just where you live. And then on the other side, it's that, you know, just think happy thoughts and the positivity and forgiveness and, you know, all those wonderful and, or gratitude, but they don't, they don't often have a conversation. And I think that's what we're trying to do in our book is trying to, to get those two parts of psychology to actually inform each other. Because as we know, as therapists, that is the whole person. It's, it's yeah. not one or the other. Exactly. That's like the missing part to me in the positive psychology is that not that I understand everything about positive psychology for it by any means, but if you're only saying, but what's the positive out of that? You know, right. if you look at the bright side, it's you're missing part of it, you know, and if you're only focusing on the negative, of course, it's the same way. Right. I, uh, I was fortunate enough to teach a senior seminar class. So this is the, this semester, this is the last class these students take right before they graduate. And when we were talking about death, cause I walked them through these, these fears, you know, they said, well, gosh, this just seems so depressing. You know, what are we, what are we supposed to do with the fact that we're all going to die one day? And we, we as a class came up with this metaphor that, you know, if there were never any due dates to any of their assignments, I asked them, would you ever do any of your assignments? And they sheepishly admitted, no, they would probably never do any of the assignments. And they said, no, that's fine. I probably wouldn't either. You know, that's why, you know, professionals make up deadlines as well. And so, you know, we kind of chatted as a class and came to the realization, death is kind of like a, a due date for life, right? It's, it's kind of like, when everything that you were thinking about doing in life is, is kind of due. And so without knowing kind of that one day this is all going to end, we might not be as motivated to make the most out of this life as we can. So it's kind of a way of flipping it around and realizing because death is going to end this life, I should make the most of it now. And, and I should be so motivated to find meaning and live the best life that I can. And in that way, kind of this realist existential realization can help usher in some of these more strengths-based positive psychology, uh, value consistent based approaches. And then we're talking about the best life you can, you know, it's those things that give your life meaning and over and over and over again, if you ask, I mean, if you ask anyone, what gives your life meaning, it's often relationships, it's connection, it's things that, that make your life worth living. And in the day to day, moment to moment, Doing um, kind things for others. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. That 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 ability to see outside yourself. It very rarely is money and wealth and all these things yeah. that we spend so much time focusing on. Or not yes. getting old and staying pretty. Right. right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No one is like, man, I, you know, looking back on my life, I just wish I had more power. Right. Or I wish I you know. worked more. I wish yeah. I worked more. <laughs> right. 
it's, you know, we, we try to come up with a, a way to think about things that can give our lives meaning. And of course, there's more than just these. But one way that we kind of thought would be a helpful heuristic would be to think of the head, the heart, and the hands. So the head are things like religious beliefs or things that transcend outside of yourself. So connection, yeah, connection with the spiritual or the divine, the heart would be relationships. So that's connections with other people. Um, And then the hands is exactly like you were saying, like this, this compassion, this generosity, this way of engaging others with a sense of empathy and um, other orientedness. I love that. That's so I don't know how you thought that up. That's just like really good, but (laughs) (laughs) you two are good at this kind of thing. (laughs) Thank you. But it also really feels so true because to me, you know, connection is pretty much what our purpose is, but you know, that connects with spirituality. And also I know that I've volunteered for years and years and years in different ways. And, Every time I'm volunteering, I feel so good about what I'm doing. It's not like ego driven. It's like, this is right. It just feels right. right. Yeah. And that's what I I would encourage listeners to, especially in the midst of COVID-19 global pandemic, to think of those things. What, what's your head? What's your heart? What's your hands? What are the things that are connecting you, filling you with meaning? And right now in a time in which maybe we're all struggling for it a little bit, there are those things, those volunteer opportunities, those ways to give back that I think it's, it's a really important thing that we can also consider as a part of our, our staying at home. It can be a way that we can have autonomy over what we do with it. Oh, that's so beautiful. So Daryl and Sarah, where can listeners who want to get your book and find out more about what you're doing, where can they find you? Maybe two different places, maybe one, I don't know. Right. Yes. So our book is available on Amazon. Any place books are sold, uh, local bookstores. It's also available directly from our publisher, uh, Templeton Press. You can find out more about me at my website, DarylVanTongren.com. Yeah. And you can follow me. I'm on Instagram. It's at The Existential Therapist. And then my website, SarahVanTongren.com. Okay. I will put links to both of those in the show notes so that everybody can get to them easily. And I just want to thank both of you so much for taking the time to be my guests on Therapy Chat today. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thanks, Laura. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. There are many ways to keep your practice organized, but Therapy Notes is the best. Their easy-to-use, secure platform lets you not only do your billing, scheduling, and progress notes, but also create a client portal to share documents and request signatures. Plus, they offer amazing unlimited phone support, so when you have a question, you can get help fast. To get started with the practice management software trusted by over 60,000 professionals, go to therapynotes.com and start a free trial today. If you enter promo code THERAPYCHAT, they will give you two months to try it out for free. Thanks also to DoxyMe for sponsoring this episode. DoxyMe is an easy-to-use, HIPAA-compliant telehealth platform that is available in free and paid versions. Get $50 off a paid account by going to doxy.me and putting in the code THERAPYCHAT. A couple weeks ago, my group practice needed to close our office to in-person sessions and make a quick pivot to telehealth due to the coronavirus. I was able to set up free HIPAA-compliant DoxyMe accounts for my staff and interns. This allowed us to quickly and easily transition to telehealth during a stressful situation. 
I already had my own paid account that I'd been using as needed. DocsyMe has been easy for staff and clients to use so we can focus on the therapy sessions. Get $50 off a paid account by going to doxy.me and putting in the code therapychat. That's D-O-X-Y dot M-E and use the code therapychat for $50 off. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you.